All right, let me, let me preface our time in the Word this morning by uh, just saying that there is quite a bit to cover and I'm going to do my best to cover it in a, uh, a quick manner, but I feel that uh, in doing it too quick, I will lose some of the important truth. So if we can't get through it all, we'll just have to do it another day. Um, but uh, there are some incredible things to be considering today and it takes some time to dig into where we're headed this morning. So turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2. There's some Bibles up the back. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. We are partway through our studies into the seven churches listed in Revelation here. And today it is the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, verse 12. A letter from the Lord Jesus, and this is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them. With the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Uh, sorry, a new name with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We're going to turn our attention to uh, the PowerPoint here this morning. Not that part, though. This part. As we continue our study this morning into this, uh, the letters to the seven churches, correspondence from Christ. I want to do my introduction here as I have done and then we'll focus on the specific text. But this is critical to understanding this letter before us. So we've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, today it's Pergamum, Thyatira to come, Sardis, Philadelphia and then finally Laodicea will be the last letter that we will look at. So our geography, just reminding us of what we're looking at here. So first of all, the author is the Apostle John, writing from Patmos, uh, where he has been exiled, uh, undergoing some tribulation, and the whole of the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him while he was there in exile. He writes to Ephesus, and then to Smyrna, and then we move up to Pergamum, which is where we're going to be looking specifically today. And you'll note it's the furthest away in a northerly um, aspect from where the Apostle John is presently when he's writing. So the recipients. Let's just talk about the recipients for a moment. We notice here in verse 12, it's to the angel of the church. And we've mentioned this before. This is uh, the, uh, refers to the leadership of the church. So those who are in leadership at Pergamum are the recipients of this letter for it to be read out to the church. 
We are not given a great deal of information about the church at Pergamum. In Acts 16, 7 to 8, we are told that Paul passed through Mysia, which was the region in which Pergamum was located. However, the Bible gives us no indication about how or when or who was used to start specifically the church at Pergamum. So we don't know that, but it's there because it's here. This particular assembly is only mentioned here in the book of Revelation. And nowhere else in the Bible, Pergamum is not found. Now I want to talk about the city of Pergamum. And this is really quite an amazing place. And I wish that was even clearer. It's not as clear as I would like it to be. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not part of a trade route. This is not a place that you would necessarily be going to because it is advantageous for buying and selling your wares, necessarily. Okay? It was not a port city, but as you'll see from that picture up the back there, it's about 15 miles inland of the Aegean Sea. And that is very, very important. Okay? And we'll see why in just a minute. Despite not being part of the major trade routes, Pergamum was considered Asia's greatest city. Okay? This is the greatest city in Asia in the Roman Empire at this time. Okay? In fact, the Roman writer Pliny called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Okay? Much of Pergamum uh, is built on a large conical hill rising some 1,000 1, feet above the plain. If you could see this more clearly, and I might blow it up afterwards, you would see that there is a huge, a huge difference between the bottom here and the top on that particular slide. That's a modern-day photo, by the way. Okay? The oldest and most beautiful section of Pergamum is also the highest. I don't know if this works or not, does it? Okay? The Acropolis of Pergamum. This was the Temple of Zeus, that sort of tall part that you can see in the middle of that picture. Okay? That's what's left of it. Um, this was the Temple of Zeus, and the massive foundations are still largely intact and can be seen on the southern slope. Okay? I should have brought my little laser pointer with me this morning, but hopefully you can see enough of that picture to see, particularly, in fact... Okay, so... You can see it a little bit better? So down the bottom here... And up, up in this middle part are all the foundations of the current picture of this city. And that top part with like an archway, that is the Acropolis or what is left of this temple to Zeus. Okay, and we'll have some more pictures in just a moment. If it's going to let me, which it's not. Okay. So the city of Pergamum, again, modern-day Pergamum on the right-hand side. This is the altar of Pergamum right here, currently, down the bottom here, in Berlin. They took it stone for stone and reconstructed it in the Berlin Museum, and that is it. That's the altar to Zeus, right here. Okay? And it remains intact and is considered one of the greatest surviving monuments of antiquity. It was this altar that Jesus referred to as the seat of or throne of Satan in our text. And you can see why. Look how big this is. This is massive across here. Pergamum was also a great literary centre. At one time it had a library of 200,000 volumes, all handwritten. And this day, remember, 
and was second only to that of Alexandria in Egypt, which had the greatest library in the historic world. 200,000 books. Pergamum was also the medical centre of Asia. It was here that the noted physician Galen was born and studied. Galen was second only in prominence to Hippocrates, which is the Hippocratic Oath that the doctors take. So this was a, an incredible centre for learning and for knowledge and for medicine. On top of that, this was the city that membrane pergamania, which is pergamenian skins or parchment, was first made. This is the place. And they designed it because they were getting so close to having a great library like Alexandria that Alexandria stopped sending any books across. And so they decided, well, we'll create our own. And they created parchment. So that the parchment or the papyri that we talk about from the scriptures, it all began here at Pergamum. So it's a, an amazing city. By the way, this is the, uh, the theatre that you would sit at that you saw in that first picture going down the hill. Okay. That is the steepest in the world. People died every time they wanted to go and watch something in the theatre. But the view was incredible. <laughs> so if you didn't mind going down with a bit of vertigo, this was the place to be for a good seat. Pergamon was an important centre of worship for four of the main deities in the Greco-Roman world. Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Interesting that they worship the goddess of wisdom there. Okay. Asclepios, which is the god of medicine. Interesting. Dionysus, which is the god of wine, which, by the way, down the bottom here, is all filled with vineyards because it's such a lush area. And then finally, Zeus, who is the god of gods in Roman mythology. Zeus is, he's the, he's the big grey-headed god who controls all the, the, uh, the weather and so forth. That's him. And they worshipped at his temple here in Pergamum. The Roman envoy in Pergamum wore a sword as an, as an insignia of office which symbolised military power. It is interesting to note that the Lord Jesus Christ opens this letter by describing himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Then I want to talk about Antipas. In our text here, it talks about Antipas, the bishop of Pergamum. Last time we were together, we looked at another man who was the bishop of Smyrna. What was his name? Polycarp. Good, very good. Someone was listening. Okay. This time, Antipas, the bishop of Pergamum. Little is known about Antipas, but tradition suggests that he was ordained the pastor of Pergamum around 60 AD and continued until his martyrdom somewhere in the 80s. Antipas was roasted to death inside a brass bull during the persecution instigated by the emperor Domitian. Some believe he literally died on top of the altar of Zeus. Tradition suggests that his martyrdom came about because he would not worship the emperor and forbade Christians from worshipping false deities. Knowing this background will help us incredibly in understanding this letter. So I just want to take us back for just a moment to this place. Current Pergamum now. Okay? Aegean Sea behind it. Um, see, see the incredible view you would get from... Uh, uh, from that theatre, it's fairly steep, and then the the altar at the top there that would be that would have been there, that altar right there, on top of that hill. Okay, this is where we are. Okay, this is Pergamum, and that's a an illustration of what it would have looked like in its heyday, on the right hand side there. That's the theatre. 
Every Roman province had a theatre. No, no, it was like an actor's aura where they would do all their Roman uh, theatrical productions and so forth. Yeah, very, very famous. Every Roman province had one of those if they were worth anything. Okay? And that's a picture, uh, if you like, of the martyrdom of Anippus. So today, what I want us to look at is Pergamum, the compromising church. Let's go to our text here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let's look first of all here at the designation of Christ. How does he refer to himself? In every one of these letters, the Lord Jesus intentionally refers to himself by a title or a phrase. Here he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Does that sound like something else we read of in the Bible? In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Interesting. But we find at Ephesus, he was the one who walked among the candlesticks and the golden lampstands, which signified his knowledge of his people. In Smyrna, he was the first and the last and the one who died and came alive, symbolizing the tribulation that they were about to go through and that they had hope that after this tribulation and after the martyrdom, they would come alive again as his people. But here in this third designation at Pergamum, we're confronted with the one who has the double-edged sword of truth, which is the word of God. I believe this title has two intentions. I believe Jesus meant two things by this. First of all, the church at Pergamum lived in a city of science and knowledge. That's what they were known for. Their library was an amazing, amazing place. And they were known for their knowledge and their, their, uh, their constant research and so forth. And so what they needed more than anything was the objective truth of God's word that would cut away that which is right and that which is wrong. It would divide asunder between them. And so I think the Lord Jesus refers to himself as the one with the double-edged sword, the word of God, because that's what Pergamum needed. They needed to know what was truth and what was fallacy. But then I think there's a second reason. I think the second reason is that some of this assembly had already moved away from the truth. And so the Lord Jesus, in a threatening sense, says, if you don't get this right, I'm coming with the word of truth and I will bring judgment upon you. If you don't get with the the program as to what you're supposed to be doing, I'm going to come not as your friend, but I am going to come as one who is going to bring judgment and severity on the church and those who have moved away from the truth. So in summary, the overarching truth in this designation is that Christ wants his church to remain pure in faith and doctrine and failure to do this will result in swift judgment. Interesting to note, the first two designations in Ephesus and Smyrna were positive. They were encouraging. This one here is both encouraging and concerning. Encouraging because he has the word of truth. Look to him, but concerning because he threatens judgment for those who will not abide by the truth. And so that is the designation of Christ. But I want you to see secondly, and as I said before, we need to move along with this because there is much to cover. I want you to see the commendations of Christ. By commendations, the things that Christ looks at the church and says, this is good at Pergamum. Look at what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name 
and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I know where you dwell. What a comfort. What an encouragement for the church to know for certain that Christ knows where his church dwells. He wasn't wondering where they were. He knew exactly where they were positioned. He knew all that was happening in that uh, territory, in that city. He knew where Satan's seat was and he knew where the demonic seducers and the evil worshippers were. He knew all about the context of their day. He was not some distant God like the others would worship who was not aware of their circumstances. That's a great comfort. And that's a great comfort for us, church, too. He is intimately acquainted with every aspect of our life. As you sit here this morning, he knows your fears. He knows your passions. He knows your sinfulness. He knows your motives. He knows the state of your finances, your family situation, your trials, your heartaches, your joys, your plans. He knows our frame. In fact, in thinking about this psalm, I had to include this in this message. In Psalm 139, we read these verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Altogether, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them how precious to me are your thoughts O god how vast is the sum of them if i could count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you what a truth god knows us god knows his church And God knows or knew his church at Pergamum. They were reminded that he knows them and the circumstances that they are in. But then look at what he says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. As mentioned in the introduction, Satan's throne is in reference to the magnificent altar of Zeus, which dominated Pergamum's Acropolis. Although it is not literally the throne of Satan, one can see why it typified this. Let me give you a quick summary here. The altar of Zeus. First of all, the word altar is very misleading. 
This is a magnificent and huge structure. This is not an altar like we read of in the Old Testament. Okay, This is in the shape of a horseshoe, this altar. It is 115 feet wide. That's 35 metres in width. Now that's very, very wide. It's 110 feet deep. That's 33 metres deep that way. 33 by 35. Okay, this is in a horseshoe. It was accessed by a huge stairway that some could see on that picture, which was 65 feet wide, 20 metres in width. That's how many people would be going up and down that 20 metres bigger than this. The podium of the altar was 22 feet high, 7 metres high, and it was constructed of white marble. Marble. This whole structure is marble. If you go to Berlin now and have a look at it, it is reconstructed as much as they could out of marble, this whole structure. And it was upon this podium altar that hundreds and thousands of animal sacrifices were made to the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. Sadly, human sacrifices were also made here. And even more recent archaeological diggings, as recent as last year, have found the charred remains of some who were burned alive on this altar in this area to their gods. How would you like a church right next to that? How would you like to go up the hill or come out of your home and the first thing that you see is the altar to Zeus? What a situation. But look at what the Lord Jesus says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Despite the persecution and the temptation to to, uh, to maintain a private faith, which I think a few of us might want to do, I think I'll keep my Christianity to myself. I'm not going to make this a big deal. I'm living in this incredibly pagan situation. Despite the temptation to do that, they held the name of Jesus high and they did not deny the truth of the gospel. That is something to be said. That is something to be held high in this passage. They lived in the very heart of satanic opposition. They were privy to evil on every kind of level. Their lives were marked by tribulation and mockery on a daily basis. There was no guarantee of their future. And yet they continued to uphold the person of Christ and his word. Sometimes we read these things in the scriptures and it doesn't mean a lot to us. So just imagine for a moment that here we are in Alexandra. We're meeting together as a church, just like we do each Sunday. But instead of it being this lovely, beautiful place that we get to meet on these lovely, comfortable chairs and sit as we do, we come out of our homes and on the top of Alexandra's hill up the road there is a mammoth temple to Zeus. And every one of our neighbours, every single one of them, is engaged in that activity of demonic worship, of, uh, of masochism, of sexual immorality, of prostitution, of offering their, even their children on this idol. And all of this is happening. Bloodshed is everywhere in the names of these gods to whom we must bow down and give worship to. That's the scene. And here we are, a group of 20-something people, and we're the only ones in this whole city of Alexandra that worship God. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine standing up against that? Can you imagine being the ones who say, you cannot worship Baal, excuse me, Baal, Zeus. You cannot worship these other gods. You can't worship these goddesses. There's only one true God. And at any moment, the threat of your life. And then the emperor comes through and everybody kisses his ring and you're supposed to worship and bow down to the emperor. And the Christian says, I'm sorry, there's but one person we worship and that is Jesus Christ. I cannot bow down. What do you think happens? And not just death of any kind. Have a look at this particular death. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Their commitment to Christ and firmness in the faith transcended even the devastation of their former pastor's martyrdom. Antipas is believed to have been one of the pastors or the elders in the church at Pergamum. And he stood firmly opposed to the satanic activity of his city. And the result of such was his martyrdom. And not to make it too graphic, let me explain what happened. According to tradition, and we don't know the fullness of this, we don't have enough historical authenticity to know to what extent, but he was definitely killed. And this is what tradition suggests. The priests and the priestesses of Zeus took this beloved pastor to the top of Zeus's podium and there roasted him alive on the altar inside a brazen bull. They pressed him into the brass mould with his head inside the head of the bull. And the purpose of this, so his body is inside this brazen bull with his head at the front of the brazen bull's head and it has uh, holes throughout this brazen bull. And the purpose of it was that when that person began to burn, his moans and his cries were heard at the base of the hill from inside the bull and that was considered a thing for Pergamum to rejoice and worship Zeus with. Imagine, imagine, Alexandra, okay, forget Pergamum for a minute, imagine Alexandra, someone that you know, someone that you love is pressed into this particular brazen altar with the purpose that the cries and the moans that come from that person's mouth as they are being roasted alive is to the glory of Zeus. I mean, I'm painting this picture intentionally so you get an idea of what it was like. Imagine that situation. And then when you... See here in this scripture, and this is where it really hits home. Because we see in verse 13, Antipas, my faithful, what's the next word? Martyr or witness. Okay, there's a reason why we need to understand something here about this word witness. In the ESV it says witness, in another translation it says martyr. The reason why it says that is the word witness is the Greek word martus. And what we get from that is the transliteration to the word martyr in English. So when you see the word witness in the scripture, in actual fact, it's the word martyrs, which usually refers to a martyr, one who gives their life for the cause of the gospel, which is why we must be ever so careful, church, to not flippantly quote Acts 1.8, which says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and you shall be martyrs. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. We love using that verse. That tells us that there's power in preaching the gospel and that's true. But you know what it really meant for those disciples when it was said? You are going to lay down your life as my martyr. We live in relative ease. 
Do we not? Upholding the name of Jesus Christ and his faith will always result in opposition. It will always result in persecution. But because of how and where we live right now, we have relative ease when compared to the rest of the Christian world. And the Bible tells us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3.13, John, the one who is writing this information down, he writes in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world hates you. It's going to hate you. Of course it's going to hate you, John says. And then Peter, who understood suffering, says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. Mark my words, church. Mark my words, honestly, and this is not being prophetic outside of scripture, the day is coming. The day is coming in our land and it is already beginning where some of us in this very room may end up being an antipas. Maybe not in the same way, but I promise to you based on scripture that if we are going to be fervent for the truth, if we are going to be a church who wants to uphold the righteous teaching of the gospel in this area, there will come persecution and one day it may cost us our lives. And the problem that we have, the tragedy that we have, is that most of us, myself included from time to time, is that we don't love Christ enough now, let alone then, so that when persecution comes, we will just disappear into the crowd. What persecution does is it proves the real, the genuine, and those who are not. I wonder, are you ready, like Antipas, to pay the ultimate price as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you ready? Because I am convinced that it is coming. I am convinced that this land will soon be the land where blood is spilt for the cause of Jesus Christ. The rest of the world has already experienced this for a long time and we don't know hardly anything of it. But these are the commendations. What a man, this man Antipas. We know so little about him, but he died for the cause of Christ. And John The Lord Jesus, I should say, commends them for their faithfulness. But that's, and sadly, that is not the end of the story. I wish we could end it there. But here we see the offences of Christ. Verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Just stop. Stop for a moment and think about that phrase. Jesus Christ, the one we worship and adore this morning, writes a letter to Pergamum and says, I have some things against you. That's heavy. heavy. That blows apart this whole Jesus is nice all the time concept that we see in modern church today, where he's always your best friend. He's never going to ever say anything that could cause you some grief or some hurt. Here he says, I've got some offences with you, church. That's a different Jesus to perhaps... What we like to conjure up in our own mind. He is the loving shepherd. He is the glorious God. He is all of that. But he is also prepared to put his finger on the areas of sin where there are issues. Things that assault his character. And he says, I have a few things against you. And here they are. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. And practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching 
of the Nicolaitans. I want you to notice a couple of things here that are really important. After commending the church as a whole, he points out that some, please see that word, some. I have a few things against you. You have some there. Now, if he said you have all there, in this case, he could not have said the previous commendation, which is you hold to the faith. He says you have some there who have departed from the truth and are holding on to erroneous teachings which are resulting in ungodly behaviour. It's important to note at this juncture that a church can be moving in the right direction. We can be moving in the right direction as a whole. I hope we are, but that doesn't mean we all are. In fact, just this morning, we talked about it in our study in 1 Corinthians. All had gone through the waters. All had gone through this area and this area and this area in Israel. All had seen these different things, but the Lord was not pleased with all of them. That's exactly the same point here. Pergamum, you're generally heading in the right direction. It's wonderful. You're upholding the name of Christ. But some, but some, I have an issue with here. Some have departed. Some have compromised the truth found in the scriptures. So what had they compromised? There's two things listed here by the Lord Jesus. The teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And this is the area I want to cover Relatively quickly, but we do need to just discuss it for just a moment. The teaching of Balaam is an interesting subject. People have various opinions on this man, Balaam. And for many years, I thought Balaam was a good prophet. But in more recent years, I don't think Balaam was a good prophet at all. Uh, I don't think he was a, a godly man of any kind. In fact, I think he was a false teacher. And I want to explain to you what happened with this man, Balaam. And most of us, the only thing we know about Balaam is that he had this strange donkey talk to him. By the way, I read it again yesterday about this donkey. I feel so sorry for the donkey. (laughs) I really do. He struck this donkey three times and this donkey was just being a loving donkey. And I think it's quite hilarious. It's such an incredible story. And I literally laughed out loud in my office yesterday because I'm reading this story. And here Balaam saddles up on his donkey and and, uh, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and ducks out this way. And so he he hits the donkey. Balaam hits the donkey. And then the angel of the Lord appears again and, and crushes him up against the wall. and and Balaam gets mad at this donkey and then as though nothing happened the Bible says just in the middle there that God opened the mouth of the donkey and she spoke to him I love that he said she spoke to him as well you know she spoke to him this donkey and it just continues and Balaam goes well listen here donkey this and he starts having a dialogue there's no moment where Balaam goes what is happening a donkey is talking to me I mean if a donkey talked to me I wouldn't just continue on my discussion with it start a dialogue I just it just blows my mind I just yeah, it had me in hysterics yesterday <sighs> what, would, what would you do I mean honestly what would you do if you you're going down the road and this donkey starts talking to you I don't know Anyway, enough said about all of that. But <laughs> some, some, of us, some of us would say, um, well, at least someone wants to talk to me. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> Balaam was a prophet for hire. Here's what this means. Balaam was prepared to prophesy for those who would pay him the money to do it. Okay, in Numbers 22 to 24... Uh, Numbers 22 verse uh, Numbers 22 to 24 those chapters deal with this whole story of Balaam. Now Balak is the king of Moab and he wants to destroy the children of Israel. This is the background here. 
But he's fearful of them because they've just destroyed the Amorites. And God is obviously with them. So Balak, being a pretty smart switch-on guy, goes, well, hey, listen, if they've just killed the Amorites, I want them dead, but I'm pretty scared because God did some pretty good stuff with them before. So that's what he thinks. So Balak says, okay, I'm going to get Balaam here. So he sends for Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And he believed that that curse would then pronounce upon them ruin and Israel would be no longer. Balak offers Balaam a reward if he will pronounce this curse. God appears to Balaam and says, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. So Balaam decides not to go. Then King Balak sends his princes back to Balaam. He offers him silver, gold, honours, etc. if he would come. And Balaam, lured by these bribes, starts on his journey, which is the story we know about. The angel of the Lord with the sword and the donkey. He still can't curse them. So he tries and after the third time, he gives up. Balaam comes up with another idea. Since he's unable to curse the Israelites, God won't allow him to. He decides to corrupt them with teaching. And this is what we read in Revelation here. He says, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. A stumbling block. Something to trip them up. His plan, Balaam's plan, was to use Moabite women to entice the Israelites into behavior with ungodly nations, sexual immorality, adultery, and the like. And you know what? Balaam's plan worked to some degree. And the result was God's judgment on Israel where 24,000 people died. And we mentioned that this morning. So what does Jesus mean when he says the church at Pergamum, some of them are following the teaching of Balaam? What he means is that the, ch the church, the Christians there, were being lured into mixing with the pagan system of the day, trying to unify it into this aspect of Christianity. We see this happening today. We see the church trying to make it work with the world. This is nothing new. The teaching of Balaam is simply this. I'm going to take this which is what God doesn't want me to do and try and unify it with that which is of God. I'm going to try and bring these two parties together which are irreconcilable. It's not possible for God to be conformed to that which is the evil of this age. And that's what the church at Pergamum, some were trying to do. Worldliness and compromise in the church is nothing new. This is not a new fad. This is not something that just started. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or we could say Zeus in this case. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. This is exactly exactly what Paul had said in the scripture and this is exactly what they were not doing at Pergamum. 
They had engaged in the feasts and festivals of paganism and they were still trying to worship Jesus Christ at the same time. Every church in every age faces the battle of worldliness and compromise. We are commanded, do not love the world, 1 John 2. Do not be conformed to the world, Romans 12. James wrote, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is to make himself an enemy of God. And so the teaching of Balaam is simply this worldliness. It is simply compromise. It is entering into that which is of the world and not that which is of Christ. And they'd done that, some of them. But then the second one is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about this heresy when we came across it to the letter at the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. The Nicolaitans were a sect that was started by Nicholas, who was believed to be one of the seven men in Acts chapter 6, who led the early church. Nicholas was led away into heretical teachings and formed a Gnostic sect, all uh, all concerned with knowledge and wisdom of this world. Where are we in Pergamon? We're in a place of wisdom and knowledge of this world. The Nicolaitans taught free love. They taught this concept of adultery and fornication were amoral. There's nothing connected or attached to that that has any problems. They mixed the pagan rites with Christian ceremonies and extended their Christian liberties to all manner of sensuality. If it feels good, let's do it. That's the Nicolaitan concept here. So you take Balaam's position, you take the doctrine of Balaam, you take the doctrine of Nicolaitans, we have a church, some of them that are in a place of worldliness and compromise. It's dangerous, dangerous situation. Now we we learn from the text, and this is really important, the majority of the church at Pergamum were following Christ, most of them. They were not participating in the evil practices or the teachings of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. However... They were tolerating members of their church who were engaged in these errors. And this is unacceptable. The question, the age-old question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is, I most certainly am. And when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, here, a local church, let's lose sight of Pergamum for a minute. Alexandra here, our church, if, we, if some of us are engaged in worldliness and activities and idolatry and, and matters that pertain to this, then it is our responsibility to go to one another and help them. We cannot simply just turn a blind eye to it. We are called to purge out that which is wrong. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, the Bible says. And so the problem here was not just that some had departed, but it was that most had not done anything about those who had departed from this fact, from this truth. It's a problem. The church at Pergamum had failed in this endeavour. Both the participants of the error and the tolerating members were at fault. So let's look at the last two aspects here. That's the offences of Christ. And then fourthly, the command of Christ. What does he say in verse 16? Therefore, repent. It's the same thing every time, isn't it? 
It's the same command the Lord gives to us every time we fail in any category, every time we sin. He calls us to a place of repentance. Repent. Repent. And this has the idea of turning away from and turning to. It's a progressive thought. I'm engaged in this activity here. I'm turning away from this activity, this behaviour, this thinking pattern, and I am turning to something else. If you simply turn away but don't turn to, that's not true repentance. Repentance is to change from an evil situation to that which is good and right and moral and proper. So if there's an area of your life that you are wrestling with that is some area of sin, you can't simply just say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore, that's it. You have to say, I'm not going to do that anymore, and now I'm going to walk in this way. I'm going to positively put these truths into my life. I'm going to follow the light. I'm going to chase the light of God and his character in this category. And this is what he says here. Turn from that and worship me as you ought to. Turn from worldliness. Turn from these these erroneous truths and turn to the truth and follow it. And that's the point here. The command is repent. This worldliness and compromise is an assault on the glory of God. Of God in his church. And failure to change we see here will result in swift judgment. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Judgment's coming. Lord Jesus was right. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins with us. It begins with Pergamum and it begins with us. And it is time for us as well to look to ourselves, to look to one another and to ensure that if a letter were written to us, that our lives are that which prove the truth, upholding the truth and behavior that is permissible and right before the Lord. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Serious, not to be quickly overlooked. And then finally, the last thing that the Lord Jesus writes to this church in Pergamum in the midst of all that is going on in that city and in their church, he gives the promises of Christ. Fifth and final, the promises of Christ. And I want to just say at this point that I don't fully understand what is meant by all the rest of these verses here or the rest of these comments here. I don't fully appreciate what, whether it was a contextual thing that he was specifically saying to Pergamum or whether it's something else. I don't fully know, but as best I know, I've got some things here for us to consider. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That bit I understand. That's nice and easy. Just listen to what the Spirit has to say. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Oh, this should be nice and easy. Understanding all of these uh, symbols and uh, metaphors and trying to work out whether he's talking about a literal stone and a literal name or if it's typified or what it is. So here's to the best of my ability. And by the way, I am more than happy to say as a pastor and teacher, I do not have all the answers and I never will have all the answers in this life. And so I'm quite happy to say I don't know. I think it's a real problem when uh, preachers think that they have all the answers and this is the only way. But let me just explain here what I think is going on. Three glorious promises given by the Lord Jesus. First of all, I will give some of the, some of the hidden manna. Before we see that, we see it's the conqueror. And the conqueror we read last time in 1 John are those who overcome the world by their faith. 
So we're talking about Christians. So the conqueror is a Christian, not the one who looks like a Christian, not uh, this sort of pseudo-Christian, the real deal Christian, the one who conquers, who overcomes, the one who is finally glorified. Jesus says, to that one, the Christian, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. I mean, it sounds amazing. Hidden manna, that sounds awesome. What does he mean? Although we cannot be certain what exactly is meant here, most scholars believe this represents Jesus himself. Because the manna in the Old Testament came from heaven. The Lord Jesus came from heaven. The manna was there for sustenance. The manna was there to provide and meet their appetite. In the New Testament, the new manna, if you like, is the Lord Jesus who came from heaven, who meets their needs, who is the one who supplies their needs, and he is the one who will produce in them and fill that appetite that is there. And so I believe that we are dealing with none other than the Lord Jesus here, and he says to the one who conquers, they will have me and to that i say bring on the spiritual manner i can't wait to have the lord jesus in the fullest sense i can't wait to see him and to touch him and to be with him in that sense fully and he is the provision is he not he is the appetite quenching one he is the one who came down from heaven to provide us with sustenance and life and fills the hungry soul And so I believe the hidden manner is none other than the Lord Jesus. It could be other things, but I believe it's the Lord Jesus. And then he says, secondly, first promise is the conqueror has the hidden manner. Secondly, the conqueror will be given a white stone. Now, on the the face of that, we say, well, I don't know if I want a white stone. What's so exciting about a white stone? But when you look at the history of what this could mean, and by the way, there are various aspects of the white stone that could be meant here when someone ran in the athletics in the greek olympiad they were given a wreath we all know that because i've mentioned that many times and most of you've studied that out it's a it's a leafy wreath that after a period of time it just dies and paul says don't go for that go for that which is going to last the imperishable crown but what you may not know is that the super athletes Those who were continual champions were also given a white stone. And on that stone was engraved their name or a pseudo name to represent some kind of a trophy for them. So they were given a wreath and they were given a white stone. And this is seen in history. In fact, they've even unearthed various different sizes of stones which may represent the the value or the honour or the quality of their athleticism. And so I think what is being suggested here is that the white stone symbolizes victory for the Christian who is an overcomer. And upon that stone, we are told, is placed a new name, which is the third promise. And what I love about this, and I'm so glad the Lord Jesus put this in here, he says, no one knows except the one who receives it. So if you say to me, well, what's on the stone? I'll say, I don't know, because... The Bible says you're given it and it's a new name and it's in the future and only you will know what it is in the future. So right now, what's on the stone? I have no idea. You have no idea. I have heard preachers tell us all these different things about what could be on this stone. The Bible says we don't know. Don't know what's on that stone. 
But I think it makes sense that this white stone is connected with victory in athleticism in that day and then in the Christian realm. Whether it's a physical white stone, I'm not sure. But what it is, is it is a symbol of victory and a new name on that stone. One commentator suggested that this particular stone may be our ticket into heaven, so to speak. It is that white stone that is the invitation. It is that white stone that says, you may come to the marriage supper of the Lamb with your new name on it. I don't know if that's true, but what we do know is there is a white stone with a new name being given to every conqueror, and that includes you and I, if you are truly a believer. So what do we learn? That's all a lot of information. The church at Pergamum faced the same choice that we face. Will we live in purity? Will we live in holiness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Will we compromise or will we stay true? I am praying and I trust you are too that God would help us to live in purity and holiness before him and not fall into the temptation of worldliness and compromise it's easy to compromise it's hard to stand but we are called to stand let us not be a compromising church let us have a resolute faith like that of antipas who would give his life for his savior let's pray heavenly father there is so much more that could have been said today and many things we skipped but lord i thank you for uh, all that is written in the pages of scripture for us here, this letter that was intentionally given to this church at Pergamum. Uh, Lord, we've seen the context, the geography, we've seen the the spiritual aspects of that city, uh, and we've seen, Lord, that for the most part the church was uh, holding forth to the truth and upholding your name. But, Lord, there were some who were not. And, Lord, I pray that that would not be our epitaph, I pray, Lord, that that would not be true of us, but that we would all with unified voice, unified heart, unified passion, follow after our Saviour in holiness and purity, that his name would be lifted up high here, and that as persecution comes, and it will, that we would stand firm, that we would be prepared, even so far as to lay down our life for the cause of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are the foundation of the church. And as we look to you, we have hope and strength and the ability to weather all the storms uh, that the devil and his entire uh, army of darkness uh, would seek to hurl upon us. Strengthen us, we pray. Thank you for Antipas. Thank you uh, for Polycarp. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for John the Baptist. Thank you for the many other witnesses and martyrs who have given, paid the ultimate sacrifice in laying down their life. Lord, we may never be called to do that, but may we say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, and if I die, I gain. Free us from worldliness and compromise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.